as an organization, we're trying to kind of create an ecosystem of organizations working across the spectrum so that ultimately voters are getting the information they need uh, to not just participate in elections, but really to trust elections. My name is Linda Laurel, and I'm asking you to have the courage to listen with an open mind to all of our voices, because our voices matter. This episode is brought to you by BMW of West Houston. Hi, this is Robert Ury, the seven-time NBA champ, also known as Big Shot Bob. BMW of West Houston has provided me and my family with the best service and the best experience for years. BMW has been there for me and my family for years, so much so that it has convinced my wife to switch over from a former brand to BMW, and she loves it. BMW has been the car to drive. It is the ultimate driving experience. Hi, everybody. It's Linda Laurel, and welcome to a new season, season five of Our Voices Matter podcast. It is so good to be back with you. I uh, took a big, long break because I needed it over the summer, but now I'm excited to be back in the saddle and sharing stories and information to remind us of our common humanity. Today's guest is Ali Nurani, the Program Director for U.S. Democracy at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. It's a role he took on just in July of this year, July of 2022. Before that, he served for 14 years as President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Immigration Forum, where he was notable for his creative coalition building. Ali has authored two books on immigration. The first one is There Goes the Neighborhood, and his new book is called Crossing Borders. Ali has been a guest on the majority of mainstream television networks, as well as radio and print outlets, and he speaks frequently at conferences and campuses across the country. Ali is an Emerson Dial Fellow. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he holds a master's in public health from Boston University and is a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley. I really had a fantastic time talking with him, not only about all of the great work that he is doing in the democracy and immigration spaces, but also his personal backstory, his family's immigration story, and his hopes for our future. And then at the very end, we're starting something new called Switch It Up, which is the opportunity for the guests to lead the conversation. I follow, the guest gets to ask me whatever they want, and then we see where it goes from there. So you don't want to miss that. Here now is my conversation with Ali Nurani. So Ali, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our Voices Matter podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Linda. I'm really looking forward to this. So am I. Um, we first met each other just a few weeks ago, actually, here in Houston, when uh, you were a panel participant in a forum that we were doing on immigration and we were talking about your new book, Crossing Borders. And I definitely wanna get to that. But before we get to that, I wanna find out a little bit more about what you are doing now as the program director for democracy with the Hewlett Foundation. Um, talk to our audience a little bit about what that role entails and what you're, you're doing to help promote our democracy. And preserve sure. It. Well, well, I would say um, back in 2013, the Hewlett Foundation Board of Directors uh, kind of saw the crisis that we're all facing now. They saw it coming. And what they launched back then was something that was called the Madison Initiative. 
And the initial focus of the Madison Initiative was really to promote the promote bipartisan actions and relationships within within Congress. Um, over the years, as quite frankly, as the situation worsened with regards to our overall democracy, uh, the board decided, and Larry Kramer, our foundation president, decided to kind of go from an initiative to a full-fledged program, focusing on strengthening and, res and restoring people's trust in our democracy. Uh, so since about 2020, the program is focused on two core strategies. Uh, one is trustworthy elections, where we focus on combating election electoral disinformation, uh, strengthening local election infrastructure, and increasing access to the ballot so that people uh, increase their trust in elections themselves. And then the second core strategy is really looking at national governing institutions where there's a focus on both the legislative and the executive branch, and really, in essence, kind of how are they operating? Are they um, are their personal hiring practices modern? Are they using technology in the most effective and efficient way? Um, so it's a pretty uh, exciting moment to being do, to be doing this work, and I'm really really thrilled to be working with within such a great uh, institution and with such a great team. Well, the work that you're doing there is certainly needed because we really are at a, a very critical moment in our democracy. And when you think about where we are with elections, you know, as of this recording, you know, we're what about three months away from the midterms, and there are numerous uh, so-called election deniers um, on the ballot um, who could be in positions of power to either certify or not certify electoral results, election results. How how do we combat that? What what can you do in your role with the foundation to help combat something like this? Well, our approach is really uh, kind of goes along two different paths. One is to, um, you know, really, number one, understand how misinformation is, is kind of moving through society. So, you know, we've worked with a number of really incredible researchers so that there's a much deeper understanding of kind of how that map of disinformation is created. Second, working with organizations, whether they are engaging the technology platforms or other distribution channels, so that, you know, really the supply of misinformation is throttled. But, you know, I think that the most important thing that we can be doing, and really in some ways the most exciting part of the work, is to look at the demand for electoral information and how are we working within communities so that, you know, people are are, are, are beginning to understand, okay, what that person is telling me isn't true. And they feel comfortable asking questions and they feel a sense of confidence and not just asking the questions, but then kind of turning to somebody else for an answer. And that somebody else says, uh, you know, somebody that they'll trust, you know, a family member, a, a local civic leader, otherwise. So really as an, as an organization, we're trying to kind of create an ecosystem of organizations working across the spectrum so that ultimately voters are getting the information they need uh, to not just participate in elections, but really to trust elections. That word trust is so critical and, and so key and, and at the core of our interactions as, as human beings, you know, and, and there is so much distrust now um, among family members, among friends, among coworkers. I mean, it has permeated every, every aspect of, of our society. 
Um, I know that in your work in the immigration arena, because you, you were the you headed up the the National Immigration Task uh, Reform or Form effort for I think it was fourteen years. Um, yep. How how are you using that work? to transition into the work that you're doing now, because a lot of what you did in immigration has direct connection to the work that you're now doing to help sort of undergird our democracy. Yeah. So at the national immigration forum back into, you know, the organization itself has been around since, you know, 1982 um, and has really played a leadership role in almost every legislative debate in Congress when it comes to immigration. Back in 2000, and in the DNA of the organization, it's always been coalition building. Um, back in 2010, we really decided that we were going to spend the majority of our time and resources on engaging conservative and moderate Americans in the immigration debate in a constructive way. And what we learned really quickly is that, you know, like we were just discussing, is that there was a real lack of trust on the part of so many Americans in the immigration system. They felt like there was no control over the border. There was no control kind of within their communities. And in the worst case scenario, if um, there was no sense of kind of how to regain control or how to rebuild trust, then people would move into this really, really angry uh, um, position. And that's, you know, to a large degree is kind of why you, we see the rhetoric and the vitriol today around the immigration debate. So but what we did is really, really tried to understand, okay, who will somebody uh, that sees themselves as politically or socially conservative, who will they trust? And more times than not, they will trust their pastor, a local law enforcement official, a local business owner. They're certainly not going to trust a DC based, uh, Washington DC based immigration advocate. So what we tried to do is understand you know, what, who those networks of trusted messengers were uh, for these communities. And over time, really began to develop strategies so that we were engaging conservative evangelicals, police chiefs, sheriffs, local business owners, so that they were the ones speaking locally about the need to uh, um, value immigrants and immigration, not just to our nation, but to their specific communities. And it's really that approach um, in different ways that uh, the Hewlett Foundation with the U.S. Democracy Program has been developing. So can you give us an example of of how you were able to bring folks from opposite sides of the spectrum together as it relates to the immigration debate? You you just mentioned that you were able to, to do some of that with some of your strategies. Can you give us a, a concrete example of that? Sure. So, you know, this year, in fact, um, we worked with a number of organizations to pull together what is known as the Alliance for a New Immigration Consensus. And this alliance includes, you know, everybody from kind of a stand together, which is uh, um, an effort funded by and really driven by the um, Koch brothers, the Koch Institute. Um, you have the Catholic Church, uh, Migration Refugee Services, the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, others who would really kind of see themselves as, again, politically conservative on a number of issues. But also part of the Ad Alliance, you, we were able to pull in, you know, mainline faith organizations, um, beginning to engage kind of more uh, traditional immigration movement organizations, all with this idea of how does this alliance create the political environment where Democrats and Republicans on the Hill can say, okay, let's figure this out. Um, and, you know, over the last few weeks, we've seen news that, you know, Senators Crapo, a uh, Republican from Idaho, and Bennett, a Democrat from 
Colorado have been working together to update our agricultural uh, um, visa programs. So there's a lot of things that are happening both publicly in terms of organizations, but then behind the scenes among members to create and craft bipartisan approach to the solutions that we need. Yeah, it, it, again, just more more important work that that you're you're doing and and bringing to light in this arena. So, I want to go into a little bit of your backstory, um, which I don't know all of. I know a little bit. Um, I know that your your parents are Pakistani immigrants. So, tell us about their immigration story and how it has impacted and informed the the work that that you currently do. Sure. So my parents were both born in uh, Bombay, and that soon after partition, uh, they kind of went through, in essence, their first immigration journey, where the family moved from uh, Bombay, India, to Karachi, Pakistan. And really, they grew up in Karachi. Uh, My parents were both trained as physical therapists in Karachi. um, And because of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act signed by President Johnson, um, they were able to immigrate to the United States in 1971 uh, because at that time the U.S. was in you know, a great need of physical therapists. Uh, they ended up in Salinas, California, of all places, which you know back then was probably a, it was a town, probably about 40,000, 50,000 people, um, a town that and a region driven by the agricultural industry. And my dad, um, you know, he, I was born in Santa Cruz, which is about 40 miles away from Salinas, but as he was going through his training uh, to get his license in the, in the States, he realized that there was only one other physical therapist in Salinas, California. Um, so, you know, my sisters and I grew up in Salinas um, and that was very much a town where, you know, our friends, you know, where the South Asian community was, you know, the way I would put it as kind of my sisters and my parents and me. Uh, so we grew up in a community where everybody was either you know, Mexican or white. And, you know, whether or not I realized at the time, I learned at a pretty young age kind of what it means to really be able to work, uh, to, to kind of operate and, and you know, be, befriend people across kind of racial and cultural lines. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a pretty special experience growing up in Salinas. And I, uh, it's, it's, I'm looking forward to going back and visiting. Hmm. So this brings me to the, the, the one question that I, I always ask our guests, which is um, to share with us an experience when you were made to feel like the other and what that was for you in the moment, how it made you feel and what you learned from it, and then how you're using those lessons learned to show up in the world today. Now, you just talked about, you know, the Asian, South Asian community in, in growing up in Salinas was basically your family. So you were, you were the other. Um, is there any particular thing, instance, incident that stands out for you? You know, um, what what stands out to me is is an experience. Um, you know, I was probably let's just say ten years old, and every summer I would kind of help at my parents' physical therapy practice. You know, folding towels, cleaning up. You know, the kind of stuff that you're supposed to do for your parents in their business, right? And I remember one day my dad uh, took me to get um, lunch at a local deli. And, you know, every now and then he would do that. It would be kind of a special thing, right? So we went to get uh, lunch. We're sitting there and we've got, you know, our paper plates, those sandwiches on those straw uh, um, kind of baskets, right? And all of a sudden my dad gets up, takes his sandwich and kind of goes, kind of walks briskly out the door. And, you know, I just remember kind of thinking, it's like, what did I say? Uh, What did I do? 
But he comes back in a few minutes and he still has a sandwich. And I ask him, so what happened? And he said that there was a homeless man uh, near the door who'd come in and was taking a half-eaten sandwich that somebody left behind. And the owner had asked the homeless man to leave. And um, that experience always sticks in my mind because it is a clear indication of kind of my dad's values, what he was trying to teach me. Um, and how in, to answer your question, how in this case, the other was this homeless man who was just trying to get some food. Um, so, you know, if there's, if there's an experience that kind of, you know, guides me as a person, uh, it is that experience. Hmm. What a beautiful story. Um, and such a powerful example of how a parent can, can really impact by example, in ways that you might not even right. even realize in in the actual moment. Um, so, as you think about uh, your your work in in immigration and your work in in the democracy movement, um, what is what is it that you think people don't get that people don't understand about either issue or how they relate to each other. So let's start first with immigration because your your book Crossing Borders is is really a, a brilliant book and it's it's very unflinching. Um, it's well sourced, well researched and and it really does an excellent job of putting a human face on on the immigration issue. Um, what is it that you think people aren't getting that is critical to that particular subject? You know, the thing about immigration is that it uh, one's opinion on immigration is shaped by so many factors. Um, you know, so the way that I've, you know, whether it's through the book or through the work that we did at the forum, you know, we'd always meet somebody who had a very positive experience with uh, an immigrant or refugee. Maybe it was somebody they met at church or their child's best friend, but they would come to love and respect the Maria or the Muhammad that they knew. Um, it's, and that personal uh, relationship was just so important. But then they would go home and watch the news or talk to other friends and family. And all of a sudden, their perception of the Maria or the Muhammad that they didn't know, the one that they saw on the television, uh, portrayed in such a, a, an often awful way, um, would, you know, kind of overpower their personal experience. So I think what, what people often don't understand is that, you know, migration at a global level is a function of war, of violence, of poverty, of climate change. And the folks that we see on television who are fleeing those things are just like the Maria or the Muhammad that we know next door. Um, and the question is, can we... Uh, um, instead of separating those two, the personal experience and kind of what we see, can we connect those two and then kind of then create the space for policymakers to say, okay, we can update a very antiquated uh, immigration system so that, yes, we do have control of our borders. Yes, we do have control of our immigration system, but we're doing it in a way that serves our national interests, but also protects uh, and serves the aspirations of the folks who are looking to come and contribute to the United States. What would you say would be, say, the top two or three simple things, maybe not so simple, but two, two or three things that, that 
we could do, that steps that could be taken from a legislative standpoint to actually move this immigration situation into a more positive direction so that we're addressing all the issues that you just talked about, but we're also keeping the humanity of people who are just seeking a better life at the core. Sure. So the Alliance for New Immigration Consensus, what I mentioned earlier, their effort is really focused on just a hand, a small handful of, of elements. One is to uh, pass legislation that would protect DREAMers or DACA recipients. Now, this is the um, uh, uh, program brought into place by President Obama back in 2012 that allows young undocumented people to attain a temporary legal status and temporary protection from deportation. Uh, rare, people much smarter than me are predicting that the Supreme Court will strike that program next spring. Uh, so there is a real urgent need to pass legislation that protects streamers. Second is to pass legislation that uh, updates our agricultural system. I think if there's one thing that we learned over the pandemic, uh, one thing that we've learned over the course of just a really tough time at the grocery store around prices is that the more food that is grown in the United States, the better off we all are. But that food can only be grown in the United States if we have a adequate and consistent labor supply, which requires a functioning immigration system. So the second element is updating and modernizing our agricultural immigration system. And you take those two elements and you pair it with a much more effective and humane approach to border security. Let's make sure that uh, the border, border ports of entry have the technology, the personnel, uh, um, and the infrastructure necessary to keep drugs, guns, and money from being smuggled, but also people. Um, I mean, we've seen far too many stories of, um, you know, people being, you know, dying in the back of tractor trailers, you know, because the cartels are the ones that are benefiting from a broken immigration system. I mean, they're making billions of dollars um, from a system that, you know, just kind of says, okay, desperate immigrant, you know, your only option here is to pay a cartel $10,000 to try to get into the U.S. Let's make sure that that individual can pay the United States thousands of dollars so that they can apply for, say, an agricultural visa. Identify them, get them on the payrolls, et cetera, yep. give them some sort of a, of, of a legal status in terms of being able to work in this country. Um, you know, the, the whole path to citizenship question is the, is the one that, has re that really divides people. But when you, when you think about the, the connection between identifying, first of all, the 11 million undocumented undocumented uh, persons who are already here, that would help un help us uh, secure the nation by identifying who is here. And then the, the technology you mentioned that could be employed at the border to identify people as they're coming in. Um, what do you think the chances are of, of having any of these three things that you just talked about actually happening from a legislative standpoint? You know, I think that um, as we go through the balance of this year, there could be opportunities in the lame duck session um, after, you know, after the midterm election gets passed or we get past the lame duck election. But then I really do think that the catalyzing event um, uh, in the next year could very well be a Supreme Court decision around the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. If the Supreme Court strikes that program down, um, you know, I think there would be enormous pressure on Republicans and Democrats to strike some sort of a deal. 
because I mean, you know, the American public, they understand that program. They know people who have been protected because of DACA. They know dreamers. They understand what, what it is and what it isn't. So um, I do think that could be a, a really important catalyzing uh, action. Mm. Are you hopeful? How do you feel about the state of our democracy and, you know, where, where we're headed? And, uh, you know, obviously you're in the trenches doing really meaningful work and you have been for quite some time. Um, how, how are you feeling about, about our future? You know, um, I am a naturally optimistic person. Um, and, you know, these days, as I am learning about the democracy movement and really beginning to understand, you know, the existential crisis that we face as a nation. I mean, you have, you know, election officials that are resigning because of death threats. Um, you have, uh, you know, the Supreme Court you know, undermining the administrative state. You have, um, you know, the Trump campaign or the, you know, Trump uh, threatening to, you know, politicize the entire civil service. You have, as we've talked about, such an enormous torrent of uh, election disinformation. Um, yet in spite of that, I am hopeful because uh, I think as long as those issues are debated and as long as you have both people who see themselves as conservative and people who see themselves as liberal saying, you know what, we need to make sure that we as a country can elect people in a free and fair way and that we as a people can trust those elections. I think as long as that debate is happening, um, I'm hopeful because I think as soon as that debate is over, um, then I think we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think people's eyes are, are, are being opened and, and are being, people are, are more engaged than perhaps they have been just because of recent events and, and all the all the chaos and everything that's that's been happening. So, okay, it's time to switch it up. And at this point in our conversation, you get to take the lead, I get to follow, and you get to ask me whatever you want, um, maybe related to what we've already talked about or something completely different. So. You have the mic. Well, I, I, I mean, coming from you know your perch as you know a longtime uh, figure in the media and really trying to explain to the public what is happening in the world, um, you know, let's say you were, you know, you're sitting behind the desk at that you know nightly newscast and mm -hmm. you were seeing what's happening. Let's just say around uh, local election officials and uh, election processes. Um, how would you explain that to your audience in a way that, you know, retained their trust? Oh, wow. <laughs> what a, what a great question. Ooh. So when I think back to J school and how I was trained to be a journalist, um, you know, I, I was I was trained in what I like to call sort of the Edward R. Murrow School of Journalism, which is that the journalist is not part of the story. It's not about you giving your opinion, your point of view. It's about you gathering the facts on both sides of the issue, whatever it might be, presenting that in an as unbiased a manner as possible to your audience and then letting your audience make up its own mind. Um, those days 
um, are pretty much gone um, in in the broadcast medium. Okay, and and you know the the day that we started having um, entire uh, networks or print publications or whatever devoted to one side or another, everything changed. Everything changed because what that does is it, it allows us to seek information that reinforces what we already believe, and then we end up living in an in an echo chamber. And that's part of what has come to the why we have this great divide. Uh, the media has played a tremendous role in this. There's no question in my mind. Um, to answer your specific question, how I would go about covering um, election disinformation, et cetera, it's you know you 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 go out and and again you you talk to and there are some outlets that are doing this, but you you talk to people who are um, the 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 folks who are on the ground who are doing the work. And you look for the evidence, and then you talk to the folks that are making the allegation, and you put the story together, and you kind of let the facts speak for themselves. But it's increasingly difficult to do in the current environment, because even the people who are holding those positions have been living in these echo chambers. And so their their entire perspective is, um, is colored by everything that is around them. It's, 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 a, it's, a, tough, it's a tough job. Um, I, I'm watching uh, you know, all the different networks and, and how they're covering things. Um, I was reading the article yesterday about uh, CNN canceling uh, Brian Stelter's show, um, Reliable Sources, which I always enjoy watching because I'm a, I'm a media geek, okay? So I like to see that. But I think part of the criticism, and I really enjoy the show, but I, I think part of the criticism is that he could be very, um, you know, one-sided in terms of who he's really talking about. So he would routinely critique the right-wing media more so than the left-wing media and there really should not be a right wing or a left wing media. There just should be media that gives the information. But that's not the world that we live in anymore. So it's it's a double edged sword, and it's very difficult because even though the media has played a role in the divide, the media's role in our democracy is critical, and we rely on it. And if not for the media uncovering certain facts, we would never we wouldn't even have gotten to where we have so far with the January sixth commission. So, and countless other things that are being uncovered because of reporters who are on the ground doing the work of real journalism, which is sourcing, you know, vetting again and again before you actually go to your audience and say, here's the story. That was a really long winded answer to your question, but it kind of took me in a bunch of different areas. <laughs> Well, I mean, do you think uh, do you think it's it's ever going to be possible for folks in media to get out of their respective bubbles? I mean, they will, what's the incentive structure for them to get out of their bubbles? That's another really good question, and um, I don't know if there is an incentive structure mm -hmm. to do that. I think it's more about reporters. Um, journalists' individual um, sense of what 
responsibility. I mean, when I decided to go into journalism, it was because I wanted to contribute to the national discourse. I wanted to be able to uncover stories, share stories that were meaningful, that could help us live better lives. I felt and still feel a sense of responsibility in that regard. And I think the vast majority of of journalists who are out there on the ground trying to uncover the important stories of the day and delivering them to um, the public are in it for the right reasons. You know, we all live here. This is our country. We, you know, we want what is best for the country. At least that's what we should want. And so I I think uh, sadly that it's going to be more of a, of a personal thing as opposed to a structural, a personal incentive as opposed to a structural incentive. Because I think that media institutions, that the media, it's, as it is currently structured, um, disincentivizes what you're talking about. So I, you know, we're in a really critical seminal moment for, for the industry itself. Um, but it, it, like I said before, it's, it's, an important, it's an important industry. It's an important part of our democracy, the fourth estate, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I guess my, how many more questions do I have? <laughs> okay, one more. <laughs> one more? All right. Uh, this is a tough one. Uh, how are the how are the Astros going to do the rest of the season? Oh my gosh! How are the Astros going to do the rest of the season? They're going to kick butt. <laughs> they are. They, there we they go. won. Okay, they're they're going to kick butt. They just beat the Chicago White Sox. Oh, by the way, I grew up in Chicago, listening to the scoreboard go off every time they used to hit a home run in what was then Comiskey Park. I don't even know what it's called now, but they just beat the White Sox twenty to five yesterday. So it's like a I score. think. Yeah, that's a football score. So I, I think the Astros are 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 going to be in the playoffs and maybe headed to the World Series again. They they're strong. They're really strong. Yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie, thank you so much. This was so much fun and and very thought provoking. I learned a lot, and uh, I'm sure that our audience did as well. Thank you for everything that you're doing at uh, at the Hewlett Foundation and all the work that you do with democracy and immigration and trying to help move us forward in a, in a positive direction. Um, always have oh, a place here so on our Voices Matter podcast. Thank you so much, Ali. Come back anytime. Thank you. Well, that was fun. My goodness, he certainly didn't throw me any softballs, did he? Hey, by the way, let us know what you think about our Switch It Up segment. Be sure to check out the show notes to find out everything that Ollie is up to. We will link to it just like we always do. We so appreciate you being a part of the Our Voices Matter podcast audience. You know what to do. Subscribe, like, share, spread the word because our voices matter. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to our sponsor, BMW of West Houston. There's a special offer for members of the Our Voices Matter podcast community. Just click the link in the show notes, bmwwest.com.